The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll finish the chapter this morning. We'll start in verse 6 in just a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This past Monday night, the Kansas Jayhawks won the college basketball tournament. Of course, they were overjoyed to win the championship, but since they were one of the best teams all year, they were not forced to wait around anxiously and wonder whether or not they would make the tournament. Obviously, they didn't know if they would win it, but they knew they would be a part of it. Some teams are not so sure of their fate. They're called bubble teams, which is kind of one of those great terms in sports because their bubble might pop, it might burst. These are the teams that don't know if they will make the tournament or not. And so they await with this anxious anticipation to see if they are selected to play. And if their team is chosen, they celebrate wildly just to learn the good news that they made the tournament and their joy is probably amplified because of the unknown because of the anticipation and not really knowing one way or the other and in first Thessalonians chapter 3 the apostle Paul is going to respond in a similar way when Timothy returned to him with news of the Thessalonians remember that he sent Timothy to check on them and to strengthen them and encourage them. He doesn't know what kind of news Timothy is going to bring back. And there's this anxious anticipation from Paul, no doubt. But when Timothy returns with good news, Paul is absolutely overjoyed when he learns that they are still faithful, still loving, and still strong. And I think that joy is just amplified because of the unknown. And because of that anticipation, today I want you to consider how we should be joyfully encouraged when we hear the good news of someone else's faith remaining strong, when we hear of their love remaining strong, even when they're facing trials or going through some type of suffering. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to actually back up and read from verse 4, but we'll start in verse 6 and concentrate there in a minute. So verse 4, Paul said, For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it has come to pass. And ye know, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now, when Timothy came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. 
So when Paul sent Timothy to check on the Thessalonians and to strengthen them, he wasn't sure what kind of news Timothy would bring back. But when Timothy returned with this good news, it seems like it prompted Paul very quickly to begin writing this letter. In verse 6, you see these, these words, but now. Now is a word that actually means just now or immediately or even this very hour. I get the picture here that I don't think Paul wasted a lot of time before he started to write 1 Thessalonians when Timothy returned with this good news. He is so thankful. His heart is so overjoyed. The Holy Spirit worked so quickly in his heart that he sits down and pens this famous letter. Timothy had brought good tidings or good news. This phrase here about good news comes from one Greek word, and most of the time when it's used in the New Testament, guess what it refers to? Most of the time when this, used, uh, when this is used in the New Testament, it is translated as either preaching or preaching the gospel, something along those lines, and it refers to the truth about Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's interesting that Paul used this word for Timothy's report. Timothy's report was truthful and it was good news because of the way the Thessalonians were remaining strong in their persecution. He says it was good news in verse 6 about these three things that related to the Thessalonians. First, it was good news of their faith. When Timothy returned uh, to Thessalonica, he witnessed firsthand that their faith in Jesus Christ was not fickle, it was not fleeting, it was strong, it was stable, it was sincere. Even the persecutions they were facing did not shake their faith in God. Isn't it encouraging when you see someone who is suffering and they don't question God? When they don't turn from God? When their faith is not shaken just because their circumstances are? God can use those sufferings in other people's lives when they remain strong to actually strengthen other people. Brother Denny and I were talking about that very thing this morning before church. Paul saw that, Paul felt that because the Thessalonians remained strong in their sufferings, Paul's encouraged and Paul's overjoyed because of the way they handled that. And when Timothy is there, he saw that. He saw their faith remaining strong. The next thing that Timothy reported about was their charity or their love. These believers truly loved God. Absolutely, they did. They also loved each other. They loved, they loved others. This word for love that Paul uses here does not focus on a warm emotional feeling so much. It doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean that it's void of emotion but this specific word for love has the idea of a decision. A decision to act on someone else's behalf, even if it involves sacrifice on your behalf. That's what true love is. It's a decision more than anything else. And so the Thessalonians were doing that. They were making decisions to act for the benefit of others, even if it meant sacrifice. And Timothy could see that and just as Jesus told his disciples, this was a mark of their 
genuine discipleship. Do you remember what Jesus told the disciples the night he was betrayed when he told them to love one another? He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Genuine sacrificial love for one another is the clearest mark of being a true Christian. It's what this world should see. Timothy went back to Thessalonica and he saw that. He said, but how do you see love? How do you see faith, right? These are, these are intangible things. They're, they're concepts, sort of. I may not be able to see faith. I may not be able to see love, but I can definitely see the actions that faith and love produce, right? Look back at chapter one and verse three. And remember how Paul began the letter and what he thanked them for? In verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul said, in verse 2, he mentioned their thanksgiving. And in verse 3, he said, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. So while we may not be able to see faith and, and love, so to speak, I can see the works in your life that your faith produces. I can see the labor and the sacrifice that your love produces. And I think we can go as far as to say that if your faith is not producing works and your love is not sacrificial, then I'm going to question whether or not your faith and love are genuine to start with. James said faith without works is dead. I hope that people can see our faith and see our love in this, in this same way. Timothy saw that when he went back to Thessalonica and these very young Christians. And finally, the last sort of piece of good news related to Paul specifically and these, these men that had gone to the city and preached the gospel. At the end of verse 6, Paul mentioned that you have good remembrance of us. You desire to see us. They had fond memories of Paul and they desired to see him again. We know from chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 how badly Paul wanted to go back and see them, how much he poured his own life into these people when he was in the city. So how good do you think Paul felt when he heard that? These people have fond memories of you, Paul. Oh, they talk about it all the time when we were with them in the city, and they remember how you were working and teaching and sacrificing for them, and it just... It warms their heart every time someone mentions the Apostle Paul and they can't wait for you to be back. They want to see you again. And Paul is, Paul's excited that he's not the only one that wants a reunion. On the one hand, this would have encouraged Paul because it proved that the people didn't believe any lie that was spoken about him when he left. No matter what the unbelieving Jews might have said about him, you know, he didn't really care about y'all or he wouldn't have left the city. If he really cared about y'all, he would have stayed and grounded you even more. They knew better. They loved him. They respected him. They had fond memories of him. I don't know if I have ever thought about this before, at least in this context, in, in the way that I'm going to present it to you guys. But I, I came across this quote this week and it really struck me. So one man said, loving remembrance of former teachers is a Christian duty. I want you to think about that. Loving remembrance of former teachers is a Christian duty. 
I think and I hope that most everyone, if not everyone here, can identify with that. Are you not thankful for the men and the women in your life who have taught you the Bible? Do you not have fond memories of Sunday school teachers? There may be some that 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago taught you in Sunday school and you still remember them. I'll never forget Miss Alita Fry, who was my Sunday school teacher when I was saved. I've got fond memories of her. We should have fond memories of our teachers and pastors and seminary professors or whoever it may be. If we don't, something may be wrong one way or the other. It should bring joy to our hearts to think about them, to recall truths that they've taught, to um, you know, share stories about them. Can you imagine that going on in Thessalonica with Paul? Do you all remember when Paul did this? You remember when he taught us about that? Now, chapter 5, Paul's going to urge them to esteem very highly the leaders who labor among them in the Lord. And, and in that context, it's those who are laboring right then, sure, but we don't have to limit it there. They should still have the respect and, the, and a fondness for those past leaders like Paul and Timothy and Silas. I think we too should look back with warm thankfulness and joy for anyone God has used in our lives to bring us the truth. Anyone he used to, to ground us in his word and to encourage us to, say, to stay faithful. Isn't that part of why we even have Hebrews 11? We have a great cloud of witnesses that we can look back to. We're not doing this on our own. Neither were the Thessalonians. So when Paul hears this good news of their faith and their love and their fond memories of him, notice what happened to him in verse 7. This is great. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted. I thought Paul sent Timothy to comfort them. That's right. But when we heard about this, we were comforted over you all in all our affliction and distress by your faith. So Paul's encouraged by the Thessalonians and about the Thessalonians since it's good news We've seen this word comforted a, a few times already in this letter. It's the same word used in verse 2, part of the reason Paul sent Timothy, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But remember this word comforted here, it's a very picturesque word, and it gives the, uh, it gives the image of someone coming alongside of someone else and maybe putting their arm around them for some comfort and some support, or maybe putting their arm sort of underneath them for, for that kind of support and that kind of guidance and encouragement. And that's probably more the idea here is that, is that of guidance or, or encouragement. Back in verse 2, Paul sent Timothy to comfort you concerning your faith. Timothy went to encourage them. But when Timothy came back, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy and everyone on his team that are encouraged. If you remain strong in a trial, God may just use you to encourage someone else. So Timothy was sent to encourage them, and I'm sure he did. But when he came back, Paul was encouraged. I can relate to this so much. 
Have you ever visited someone in the hospital hoping that you would lift their spirits? And then you left and you felt like they did you more good than you did them? That happens all the time. Maybe you knew someone who was going through a tough time, so you wanted to call them or send them a text or an email or drop by and visit them or whatever it may be, and you thought they need this encouragement. But it was like a boomerang, wasn't it? It sort of came back to you, and you ended up being encouraged by that. You, you felt better after talking with them. And God's amazing like that, isn't he? It didn't mean the Thessalonians weren't encouraged by Timothy and by extension by Paul, but encouragement is often a two-way street. It's reciprocal. And I think one reason why that's so awesome and why that's so important is because nobody's life is simple and easy. Especially if you're suffering as a Christian. But think about this circumstance. The Thessalonians were not the only ones facing tough times right then. Paul too was facing tough times. He too was suffering. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 18 just for a moment. And as you turn there, I want you to just consider that when Paul sent Timothy to strengthen them, his life wasn't perfect. Well, I don't need the encouragement right now, Timothy. Go encourage them. I'm good. It was a sacrifice for him to send Timothy. Acts chapter 18. We'll read verse 4 through 6 in just a second. But if you remember the history of this missionary journey, we've already seen several of his afflictions. What happened in Philippi? He and Silas were beaten and imprisoned. In Thessalonica, they were essentially run out of the city. The, the believers snuck him out. In Berea, same thing happened again because of the unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica that chased him. In Athens, he is by himself, and we have no record of any church being established in Athens. He's struggling through all this, and now he's in Corinth. When Timothy returns and look at Acts 18, verse 4 through 6. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And listen to this. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Things didn't get easier in Corinth. He is run out of the synagogue even in that city. And yet in 1 Thessalonians, again, in chapter 3 and in verse 7, he said, when we heard about all this from you, we were encouraged in all our affliction and distress. That's just so awesome. If you look in verse 8, this good news gave Paul what we would call a new lease on life. He says in verse 8, For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. This is a really short verse, but it's really powerful. One author used this phrase to describe Paul before he heard this news while he was still unaware. He used the phrase that there was a dead weight of apprehension. I like that. There's a dead weight of apprehension. Just, just not knowing how they were doing. Just burdened Paul. Can you imagine how heartbroken and devastated he would have been if the news were different 
If Timothy came back and said, Paul, they're, they're done. They folded. The persecution was too much. They buckled. They're not staying faithful to God. If only we would have been able to stay in the city longer and ground them. But Paul, it, it was useless. It was vain. I, I can't imagine what Paul would have gone through. Thank the Lord that was not the news. Timothy came back with good news, and I, I think Paul had this renewed zeal for his ministry. We're alive now. This is what it's all about. That makes the sacrifice worth it. Hearing that people who believed are staying faithful. And so Paul feels like he's truly alive again. Notice the end of the verse, especially if they continued to stand fast in the Lord. This term, stand fast, is a military term. It's essentially the opposite of retreating. Stand fast. Um, it was like soldiers repelling an enemy attack. And they don't buckle. They don't, they're not cowards. But they stand fast. They stand firm. And Paul says, we are truly living if you keep doing this. And as, as Paul uses this word, if, I don't think he was so much doubting that they would continue to remain strong, although there was a possibility. But it was a way of reminding them of their ongoing responsibility. This good news has encouraged us, and we're just going to keep on living if you keep on standing fast. You just keep on doing what you're doing. Keep standing strong in the face of persecution. So if verse 7 or verse 8 have not convinced you of, of Paul's joy, look at verse 9 and 10 one more time, especially verse 9 here. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Paul felt that he could not possibly thank God enough for the Thessalonians and for the joy that they brought to his heart and to his life. We talked several weeks ago about how there needs to be joy in our hearts and in our lives when someone believes in Jesus. If you're not rejoicing when someone else trusts Christ, you need to do some serious soul searching of your own. But here, they've already done that, right? The joy isn't necessarily about their salvation. Here, it's about their steadfastness. So these believers who are young in the faith, who are without Paul, they've remained strong in spite of persecution. That brings so much joy to Paul to know that they're continuing on. It should bring joy to our hearts when we hear of other people obeying, other people remaining faithful. In 3 John, John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And so there should absolutely be joy when someone is saved. If there's not, something's wrong. But there should also be joy when people are faithful, when they're obedient, when they're walking in the truth, no matter what circumstances in their life they're walking through. Paul had poured himself into these people, and now their perseverance has produced joy. And we would probably think, at least from our perspective, what a victory for Paul, right? What a victory for this missionary. 
But notice that's not Paul's perspective about this. He doesn't think like that in verse 9. He doesn't say, man, I'm good. I didn't even get to spend that long with these people and they're grounded. The apostle Paul does it again, you know. Their steadfastness, their faith, their love was a gracious work of God. God was to receive the praise and the thanksgiving for this, not Paul. Even Paul mentioned that. One author said, let Christian workers beware of taking credit for results only God can produce. Paul wasn't even there. How can he take credit for this now? Didn't he say something similar to the Corinthian church when he said, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything? But what? Only God who gives the growth. So this great news about the, the faithfulness of this church, it didn't give Paul the big head because he started it, because he was the one that preached the gospel to them. He didn't feel like he's the best missionary ever, and boy, God's lucky to have Paul on his team. Instead, he felt indebted to God. He didn't even tell the Thessalonians, you should be indebted to me. He said, I feel indebted to God with a, with a weight of thankfulness that I cannot possibly repay. Or a debt of thankfulness I cannot possibly repay, I should say. He said, I don't even know how I can thank God enough for you all. How can I possibly thank God for the joy that you have given me? And one thing that amazes me about this is that Paul has just mentioned his own afflictions. They did not somehow magically disappear when Timothy returned with this good news. Paul still faced his own affliction and his own distress, and yet in spite of his circumstances, he now has this overabundance of joy because of the faithfulness of others. Joy is not dependent upon your circumstances. Happiness might be. Happiness is like a roller coaster, right? But joy doesn't have to be. And it shouldn't be. Joy is produced by God's spirit in your life when his will is accomplished and when you understand what kind of relationship you have with him through Jesus Christ. Paul is joyful now. One thing we can learn from Paul right here is that we don't need to be so worried about and so preoccupied, uh, so preoccupied with our own troubles that we don't allow God's spirit to produce joy in our lives when we hear about someone else's spiritual success. When someone else is obeying God, God's spirit can bring joy to your life no matter what you're facing. That's an aspect of the fruit of the spirit is joy. But let's look at verse 10. This, this great report of their faith and love did not mean that Paul didn't want to see them anymore. Like, oh, they're good, okay. You can check that off the list, right? We checked on them, they're good. Look at verse 10. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face. They still want to be back together. Paul still wants to return. He says, we pray all the time. We pray night and day that we, could, we can make it back. The word praying here is not the normal word in the New Testament for praying. 
It's not just the common word here, but this word is more like a, a beg, a beseech. It's a, it's a pleading, even, even asking or pleading for a particular need or, de, or desire. And so think about it this way. Paul and these men, they were begging God. They were asking God to please let us be back together again with them. And I think this is so encouraging because remember from chapter two, we saw Paul's great desire to be with them, but why had he not returned? Satan hindered him, he said. We don't know how, but if you remember that word hindered had the idea of breaking up the road. Somehow Satan had sort of busted up the road and, and slowed down this advancement of, of Paul. But Paul knows that he can still pray to God to change something. Satan might bust up a road, but God can clear the path if he wants. So Paul keeps praying. Satan may be hindering us right now, but if God wills for us to go back to Thessalonica, we'll go. And so Paul lets his requests be made known unto God, and he begs God to let this happen. Think about that Satan's hindrances did not hinder Paul's prayer life. Paul kept praying. He keeps praying. So the great report didn't change Paul's desire to be with him. And one final thing, it also didn't mean that they were perfectly mature, uh, mature Christians yet either. Okay? Look at the end of verse 10. Why would Paul want to go? That we might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. This word perfect here is an interesting word. It's used in different contexts in the New Testament. Um, from mending a tattered fishing net to restoring a brother who has fallen to even just equipping or preparing someone or something. And that's probably the idea here is that of equipping or thoroughly preparing. Paul said, we want to, we want to equip, we want to prepare what was lacking in your faith. Lord, lacking is a great word. It was used in Luke 21, if you remember the story of the poor widow who gave her tiny offering. And Jesus said, out of her poverty, out of her lack, out of her need, she put, all she, had in, uh, she put in all she had to live on. That word poverty or lack there is the same word here. So for the Thessalonians, it, it wasn't that their faith was bad or defective or anything like that. Paul has just been overjoyed and thankful and encouraged by the fact that they were faithful. But he also knew that Christian life is a growth process. There was still something they needed, something they lacked that he could help supply. And if we read through the rest of the letter and maybe 2 Thessalonians, perhaps some of that was just more grounding on the return of the Lord, some more further teaching in other areas. Remember, Paul didn't get to stay in the city very long. A few weeks at the synagogue, maybe a couple more months in Jason's house, but it wasn't long. And he knew that their presence, or that his presence, would help their already steadfast faith just become more complete, more mature. It would grow them a little bit more. So he kept praying, Lord, let us return. Let us go back.
the unknown and the anticipation that Paul faced while he was waiting on Timothy to return, it seems to have just increased his potential for joy because he didn't know. Like one of those bubble teams in the you know, college basketball, they don't know. And if they get selected, it is wild celebration. Paul is overjoyed when Timothy returns with good news. There's a couple of ways we can uh, apply this, and one of them is that when we hear of other churches, when we hear of missionaries, when we hear of other believers who are remaining strong, um, who, who God is blessing, it should encourage us and bring us joy. Their spiritual success should not make us jealous. I read earlier from John chapter 3, Earlier in the service, John the Baptist's disciples, they were being jealous when Jesus' following was growing and John's was decreasing. John wasn't jealous by that. He said, you can only receive what God gives you. He must increase, I must decrease. If God's kingdom is advancing, if people are believing in Jesus, if other people are being blessed by God, we shouldn't look at that in a jealous sense or in a, an arrogant sense of, well, they don't deserve that like we do. We should be thankful for that. And, and their, their own uh, faith and love should encourage us. That's one way God can use it. But that should definitely happen among ourselves as well. Not just with, with other churches or other believers, but it better be happening within ourselves. When one of us suffers, but his or her faith and love remains strong and remains apparent, you need to be joyfully encouraged by that good news and by that good witness, even though you might have been the one trying to encourage them to start with. God can work like that. We all need that encouragement from one another because none of our lives are perfect all the time. Or very rarely, right? I mentioned this recently, and you all can see it, I know. As, as time passes, even in our own country, we will face more and more hatred and pressure because we are Christians, because we believe that this book right here, the Bible, is truth. You can already see and feel and hear, uh, you know, increasing anti-Christian, anti-biblical views. And when more suffering like that comes, those are not the times to falter and fail and question God. But those are the times to be like the Thessalonians and remain strong in our faith, to remain strong in our love towards God, towards love one another, and let God then use us to encourage others and bring them joy. I hope that you're thankful for each other here. I hope that you're encouraged and overjoyed when you see one another living for Christ. Just doing the right thing can help other people. We're all in this together. And if North Bryant has hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of faithful and fruitful servants, we're still not going to poke our chests out about it and Talk about how good we are. It's still nothing for us to brag about. Let's be like Paul and say, how in the world could we possibly thank God for everything he's done for us? 
In Psalm 116 and verse 12, the psalmist said, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I want you to think for just, just a moment about what God has done for you in your life and what God has done for this church. How can we possibly thank God enough for that? The greatest thing he's done for us is send Jesus Christ to die for us. He took our place, he took our sin, he took our shame upon his sinless shoulders. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus as your savior, I'm urging you to repent of your sins and trust him this morning. You will truly have life. You will be forgiven. There will be joy in heaven. There will be joy in this room. But it won't be a joy that we take credit for. It'll be a joy that we thank God for. I want you to stand. How can we possibly thank God enough? I don't think we can. But with his grace... We can give our lives back to him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the way you can use, use each other, Lord, to encourage each other, the way Timothy and Paul and the Thessalonians did. And Father, I pray that you will give us the strength and the grace to, to face trials, especially trials as Christians. Uh, face them with, with grace to remain strong, to remain firm, Lord, help us to encourage one another and then help us to help that to be reciprocal. When we hear the good news of other people's love and faith, Lord, help us to be overjoyed and encouraged by that. And God, we just simply cannot thank you enough for how good you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.